Hello, JDs and Lents, as our own John Lennon would say, and welcome to the pre-Chicago Fest for Beatles fans edition of She Said, She Said. I'm Lena Stagg, the culinary chef uh, and author of the Recipe Records series of rock and roll themed cookbooks. They are certifiably delicious and contain some of your favorite rock songs, such as Jello Goodbye, I Am the Eggs Man, and Rock and Roll Hoochie Couscous, just to name a few. Each book also contains rock history, trivia, and playlists for you to enjoy as you whip up these amazing dishes in your kitchen. In short, Recipe Records is a party in a book. Try them out once and you'll be hooked. You can check out the series at my website, lanastag.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my free newsletter and rock blog. And if you're ever in the heartland, in Evansville, Indiana, that is, come by and say hi to me at the gym that my husband and I own, the historic Pitt Barbell Club. Any day now, we're opening the Pit 2 on the east side. Our motto is no carpet, no sauna, just iron. And we will get you back in shape. I mean, she will do it too. She has been keeping me motivated and in shape for the last 10 years. And uh, I'm, a, I'm one that like about every month, once a month, every two months, I'm like, that's it. I'm done. I quit. And she's like, no, you're not. You're going to keep going. And she's a great motivator. So if you're near Evansville, anywhere near Evansville, go by the historic Pit Barbell Club. It's one of the most historic clubs in Indiana, and she will whip you into shape. And I'm also a huge fan of the Recipe Record series. I've got all of the books right here with me. This one is the culinary tribute to the Beatles. And there you can see the stuffed Sergeant Peppers on the back. But it doesn't just have recipes. It also, as Lena said, contains a lot of rock and roll stories and history and why things are named certain things. Um, I think you'll be really interested. And here's a great idea. If you aren't the cook in your family, give it to the cook and it'll be a treat for you <laughs> as well. You can just sit back and reap the rewards. Hello to you all. Thank you for being with us today. We always appreciate the gift of your time. I am Jude Sutherland Kessler, the author of the John Lennon series, a series which was thought to be at first one book, then three books, then nine. I'm pretty sure right now it's going to be 10 because book five was so large, I had to break it into part one and part two. It is. It came out just a few months ago, and this is it. You can use it at the Pit Barbell Club for weights, hand weights. Uh, <laughs> yes. This is the first eight months of 1965, and part two that I'm working on right now picks up as the boys get on the plane to go to America for the 1965 North American tour. And it encompasses not only that tour, but what we're going to be talking about today in large part, which is after they came home, the frantic and yet amazing creation of Rubber Soul and how they managed to fit that in. The books are all very meticulously researched and far too slowly documented. It takes too long to do that, but it takes you on a journey with the Beatles as if you're there, you read it as if it's a narrative, but it's all documented. And hopefully Landa will have her books and I will have my books and our special guest today will have his books 
August the 12th through the 14th at the Chicago Hyatt Regency O'Hare. We want to meet you. We want to be able to finally, after two years, get to see you face to face, sign our books. So if you haven't made your reservations for the Fest for Beagles fans, you better get on it. And even if you can't get at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare, there are lots of great hotels that are within walking distance. So it's a beautiful area, lots of great restaurants, great Chicago deep dish pizza, lots of things to do. All three of us encourage you to um, take part of that. And I'd love to send you home with a copy of Shades of Life and with a free few linen goodies as well. Absolutely. And we just received good news in this past week that the John Lennon series has been accepted, rightfully so, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame archives. So congratulations to Jude. It so um, is worthy of being in those archives. It's very important. So Jude and I are celebrating today by having one of our favorite guests and friends on the show. He's a noted guest speaker at Abbey Road on the River, Beatles at the Ridge, the Grammy Museum Beatles Symposium, the White Album Conference, the Best for Beatles fans in Chicago, New York, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles. He's also the creator of the questions for the Trivial Pursuit Beatles Edition game. And hey, that's not even his day job, which is <laughs> being a respected tax attorney in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm telling you, I, he reminds me of that song by heart. He's a magic man. Da, 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 da. I mean, I don't know how he gets this stuff done. First, he created a whole series of books about the Beatles recordings and pressings and the variances and differences between the two. He is without a doubt the Beatles Fnpedia. That's what we always call him. He is a musicologist. He knows everything there is to know about the Beatles music. And he did that whole series. So that was the Beatles on Capitol Records, part one and two, the Beatles swan song, give it, the Beatles for sale on, you guessed it, Parlophone Records, uh, the Beatles are coming, a uh, great series. And then he has now turned his attention to a fascinating Beatles album series. And being an English major, we call what he did here um, starting in Media Ray which means you start in the middle of the action. That's how all the great books are written. You start in the middle of the action, you either go forward or you go back, kind of the way Star Wars did their series. So he started with, and he can correct me if I'm wrong about this, The Beatles and Sgt. Pepper, A Fan's Perspective, which is slap dab in the middle of the career, followed it up with The Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour and Yellow Submarine, and we have, of course, the Beatles' White Album and the launch of Apple, which I'm pretty sure came out in 2018 um, to celebrate that anniversary when we all went to Monmouth University for the White Album Conference. Then the Beatles get back, get it, to Abbey Road. I love it. These all have such clever titles. And the Beatles finally let it be. But of course, they didn't let it be, because now we're going to go back and get the earlier albums. And so we are fascinated and riveted to hear about the brand new book, which is coming out 
on the 10th of October, but if you pre-ordered, we may have some good news for you. And to welcome to She Said, She Said, our dear friend, Mr. Bruce Spicer. Woohoo! Oh, great to be here. Great to be here. Always enjoy sitting around talking Beatles with people that know their Beatles. <laughs> well, we know you know your Beatles, that's for sure. And welcome. Is it scorching in NOLA? It is, but you know, it's scorching all over the world these days. So <laughs> it's yeah. more humid in New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, Lena can attest to that, can't you, Lena? Oh, it's miserable here. Miserable. Yeah, you guys are having a, a real heat wave in the Midwest from what I hear. Well, Bruce, we have so much to talk about that, that we're going to go ahead and jump right into it because there, you're not, this time, you're not just covering one album, you're covering two. Um, this, this book is um, covering from Rubber Soul to Revolver. So what gave you the idea to put these two together? What do they have in common? What drew you to, to making a book on, on both of these LPs? Well, you know, I grew up in the United States. And so for us, we have the Rubber Soul album. Then we had this strange little album, Yesterday and Today. And then we had another new album, Revolver. And so that's how the music was presented to me. And I thought, you know, it kind of is an interesting time period because it covers December of 65 through the end of 1966, essentially. And I thought, you know, if I did a book like that and I started it with what happened in the UK, because you have to do that. My later books or my earlier books, depending on how you want to look at it, started up with a chapter about what went on in the United States, because that's the music I grew up with. But to tell the story of Rubber Soul and Revolver, you must begin with the British. And, you know, when I was doing a bit of a research, I remembered in the back of my mind that George had said he always considered Revolver as Rubber Soul Part Two. So I thought, you know, these two albums would work really well together. It would, you know, give me a way to cover yesterday and today in its proper context. And in addition to that, from, a, you know, writing about what was going on in the world, it would give us a very exciting year of late 1965 through 66. And a lot went on in news, a lot went on in music, a lot went on in film. And as your listeners may know or may not know, the way I approach these books is I start off with, if you were living in the United States or in the United Kingdom, you know, what would you have learned as these records were being released and as songs were being played on the radio? So we open up with a chapter on the UK, then a chapter on the US, and then uh, we also cover what was going on in Canada. And my good buddy, or all our good buddies, Pierce Hemmingson, writes right. about what was going on in Canada. And then there are other things, like in this particular book, of course, we'll talk about it. You have to cover the butcher cover. But I also get people to write about what was going on in the world. And who better to do that than the wise old man, Al Sussman? Right. And Al has been an editor with Beatle Fan for many years. He's also written his own books about changing times and things like that. So it's a lot of fun when Al sends me a chapter. It's a lot of fun to edit and put the right images in and things and really enjoy working with Al. And then I've also, Al this time also wrote about the great music that was from that period, 1966. Incredible music, not just the Beatles. And then Frank Daniels writing about 
film, but not only film, but also because Frank loves comic books, as do I, some very important comic book issues from that time. So that kind of sets the stage. And then the middle section of the book is one of my favorite in every book called The Fan Recollections, where we have people, just everyday people, write in and write about their memory of, you know, first hearing Rubber Soul or first hearing Revolver or buying a copy of Yesterday and Today and then learning there was something underneath and steaming off that trunk cover and seeing a butcher <laughs> cover underneath it. You know, it's been great. Uh, both uh, Jude and Lana have written uh, fan recollections for me. Jude is, sometimes Jude writes such an incredible piece, I have to give it its own chapter. <laughs> and I'm always happy to do so for Jude. It's wonderful to get something from her like that. Uh, and then the final section of the book goes through how the covers came about and how the songs were recorded and the albums were put together. So it's, you know, a lot involved in the fan recollections. I also get fan recollections from, you know, Bill King, because Bill, being the editor of Beatle Fan, would do these sections every now and then called fan notes. So Bill's worked out well. So it's really been quite a crew to put together to do these books. And, um, you know, I've really enjoyed doing them. It was going to be a book on Sgt. Pepper. And, of course, even before the book came out, people knew about it. Well, of course, you're going to do a book on, you know, got to do the White Album. Next thing I knew, we're just doing a Beatles album series. Yeah. And that's how it came about. Awesome. Yeah, they're great. They're, they're really so excellent. And I love hearing from people because even Mark Lewis had wrote you a fan's oh, recollection. Yeah. In the Sergeant Pepper book, great photo of him with his Sergeant Pepper outfit on yeah. as a young boy. And it's so many uh, celebrities. Who are some of the celebrities that you've had that have written your fans' um, recollections? Yeah, some Brian, of the ones Brian that, Howard? you know, I mean, one of the ones that I really was very pleased with um, was getting something from Billy Joel. And he <laughs> told the wonderful story of how he first heard Sergeant Pepper. He said, you know, no one's ever asked me that before. And his story was, you know, of hearing the album for the first time. And I hate to give away a punchline, but it's such a great story. And the, the idea was he had broken up with his girlfriend, but she invites him over and he goes over and there are a bunch of people there and there's this fancy turntable and they put on headphones and they hand him a joint. And he had never smoked a joint in his life before. <laughs> and he's listening to Sergeant Pepper and smoking a joint for the first time. And he said when it was over, he realized he was taken to a whole new world. And he said, but it wasn't sure whether it was the Beatles or the pot. He said he went out and bought the album. It was the Beatles that took him to that new world. Wow. Wow. Another, yeah, I mean, you know, you can't make that stuff up. Another wonderful one was um, I knew someone who was a friend of Peter Tork, Karen, who many people know from yes. the uh, Fest for Beatle fans from Chicago. So I asked Karen, could you ask Peter to write something? And she said, sure. And two months go by, and I figure, well, maybe nothing happened. So I shoot her an email, and she writes me back and says, Bruce, I'm so sorry. I forgot to ask him. I'll send him an email now. So 20 minutes later, no more, I get a return email from her. I'm expecting her to say, Peter said, I don't have time, or I'll get it to you next week. Instead, she says, this is what Peter wrote. <gasps> now, how heartfelt was that? In 20 wow. minutes, he told me his story. And what he wanted wow. to do was hear it in the best stereo system in the Valley, which, of course, meant going over to 
somebody in the birds. And so he oh. went over to Crosby's house and here from oh. David Crosby's house. Crosby wasn't there, left the key under the mat. There he is sitting in Crosby's house listening to Sergeant Pepper. Wow. It just reminds me so much of what is that line from Summer Rain? Everybody kept on playing Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yeah. I mean, that was and that the- was that was, and that's how I opened my chapter on the book right. was, you know, with that. Because it I think it said it all. Yeah. And the it funny was- thing was the actual line the first time they sing it is, and the jukebox kept on playing Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Bam, which was right. not possible. When Johnny Rivers recorded that song, unless you were in Italy, you would not have had that on a 45 that could have been played on a jukebox. And you know yeah. how many people would know that? <laughs> that is good. I love it. That's what makes you the authority. And I mean, <laughs> you know this stuff, and that's the truth. Well, Rubber Soul, without a doubt, is one of my two favorite Beatles LPs. And, you know, everything changes. Everybody calls Revolver the pivotal LP. But with Rubber Soul, suddenly all of the love scenarios are very complex and mature. It's no moon, spoon, croon, June. Very complex. Uh, women have become completely different. If Whether it's the girl and what goes on, who is not very nice, to girl, the girl and girl, who is certainly no sweetheart, to the aggressive women, both in Norwegian Wood and Drive My Car, you're dealing with a, a different animal than you have in the other uh, LPs. And yet the boys did this with no time. What, what, what got them through, Bruce? They only have weight recorded. That's it. Everything else is, is new. How did they manage it? Yeah, I mean, what happens is, and what I love about doing these books is I go back to that time frame and I look at all of the British weeklies. I mean, there were four major British weeklies and other publications. And of course, the Beatles book for the fan club. And Johnny Dean talked about Paul. And what Paul basically said, you know, was the cupboard's completely empty. It's bare. Right. And we need to write some songs to go into the studio and record. They go into the studio, they record some songs, and then they have to stop going into the studio because they need to write more songs. And you know, and you get all this wonderful information from you know Melody Maker, New Musical Express, uh, you know, and things like that. The Beatles book, and you learn so much because it's exciting. Because as a historian, I'm not interested so much in what someone thought about the album 20 or 30 years later. I want to know what they thought about the album when it came out or before it even came out where they're learning about these albums well in advance, particularly when you get to Revolver. We'll we'll talk about that later. But the remarkable thing is, under incredible time pressure, the Beatles knock out these songs. And out of the songs that they recorded for the album, and also Day Tripper, We Can Work It Out, not a bad standalone single. That's 16 songs on that album. Out of those eight appear on the Beatles hits collection. No other album comes close to that. Eight songs from the Rubber Soul Sessions are considered among the Beatles' absolute best. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, that's really incredible. Well, one of the things that you do is to talk about the reviews immediately after Rubber Soul or Revolver or whatever was released. And you do a thorough coverage of what was said on both sides of the ocean about Mm -hmm. the LP. 
And I had to smile because you mentioned that Richard Green from the record mirror, this this girl is sad and weepy. <laughs> weepy. I bet John Lennon could have smacked him for that. He called, I'm looking through you and the word dull and ordinary. The word dull and ordinary. But he dubbed one of my favorite songs, the pot boiler, the strong closing number, Run for Your Life, as the best track on the album. So if we put aside what I consider to be highly unfair criticism of a song that was written in 1965 and based on a song that was written in 1954 and recorded by Elvis in 1955, and, we, and the judging it by the standards of 2022 is just cray-cray. <laughs> so if we put that aside, what is the strength of this closing number, Run For Your Life? Yeah, it amazes me that, you know, it was, it was an upbeat song musically. Yeah. So it, it is catchy, you know, got a hook. I'd rather see a dead little girl than to be with another one. Sounds yeah. great. Yeah. But when you sit down and listen to what John's saying, ooh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I started listening to some of the others that didn't get censored, like Hey Joe, <laughs> which no one said anything about, or songs, you know, that were written like Johnny Get Angry, Johnny Get Mad, Give Me the Biggest Lecture I Ever Had. All of those were accepted. <laughs> Only John Lennon gets pinged on. But it is, um, it is, you, you go back and look at the, at the closers of Please Please Me, Help. Hard Day's Night, they're all pot boilers. Yep. And look at this. It's a, great, it, it's a good song. Yeah, I mean, you know, John always said, I've always hated Run For Your Life. And I think it was because he kind of felt, well, I, I lifted the, the opening lines of the song and just knocked it out. It's no big deal. And But um, it was the one that really got a lot of attention. And, and I found that fascinating um, because to me, I certainly wouldn't call it my favorite track on the album. You know, I would... I would say In My Life is one of my favorite Beatle tracks of all. So, of course, that would be my favorite track on the album. And I agree with you. How could any reviewer say any song by the Beatles was dull and ordinary? That has made me laugh. It really made me laugh. Well, in probably early August, the Beatles all went to Brian and, and said, that they felt like that they were being overexposed. George Harrison famously said, even I'm sick of seeing us everywhere we go in every shop window on buses, on billboards, they're the Beatles. And Paul really petitioned Brian to do away with the 1965 UK tour because they were, they were so pressed. Um, Brian at first says he's going to do it, and then he backtracks while he's in America and says he won't. What What are your feelings about the 1965 UK tour? Is that how did they do all they did, Bruce? How did they fit all this in? <laughs> yeah, it was you know the, they work great under pressure, obviously, because in less than two months' time, really one month time, they put out this great album in studio time, but you know another couple of weeks to write the songs. And we've already talked about how they're really the best songs the Beatles have ever done. They also begin experimenting in different sounds. Uh, in particular, you know, you have Norwegian Wood with sitar on it. You know, George in the film Help had seen the sitar. And, and it always, you know, things seem in the Beatles to work out for a reason. You wonder that if George Martin had been musical director, you know, would they have come across a sitar? Maybe. 
George Martin had used it in Peter Sellers' record, so maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. But nonetheless, you have sitar, and it really, you know, is fascinating. John is playing an intricate acoustic guitar part that he has trouble with, and when he finally gets it right at the end of the take, he says, I showed you. And it's, you know, and it's, it's fun. It's John being fun with it. And so many of the songs are using the acoustic guitar, which was used heavily in a lot of the help sessions. And what's interesting is, you know, the Capitol did things differently. And for Rubber Soul, it's very similar to the UK album, but it also is different in that it drops four songs, but it adds two that were left over. Capitol hadn't put them out because they did a help soundtrack album rather than a help album with songs from the film on one side and other Beatles songs on the other. So they had these two songs left over and they thought, well, we'll, we'll use it on Rubber Soul. And they both were acoustic sounding songs. I've just seen a face which had been buried on side two of the help album. But here it's the opening track, the pop boiler to open the album, the acoustic guitar intro that just grabs you and pulls you into the album. And the album has so many acoustic guitar songs. And then side two opens with another acoustic guitar song, It's Only Love. And then you get a song like Girl, and there's debate as to whether or not a Greek instrument, a bouzouki, is used, or whether it's acoustic guitars. And different people remember different things. I think it's probably acoustic guitar played simultaneously, but you know, maybe one day we'll know for sure. He capoed it up, right? Isn't that what he did? He capoed it up. So it yeah. Would sound. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's funny because George Martin says he remembers John using or the bazooki being used. Yeah. And then Paul says, no, that's not true. He capoed up the guitar. Mm-hmm. So two people in the same room on the same night at the same time, history is slippery. Yeah. And we don't have pictures from that session. Now, what's great is we have pictures from the Michelle session. So we know that Paul capoed up his bass guitar on Michelle, which is kind of interesting. So it gets a very different sound. And you have all these different acoustic guitars, you know, wonderful solo that George plays, that George Martin basically had, you know, worked out with him. You know, and you just have wonderful things like that in my life where they know they're going to put a solo. They're not exactly sure what. They leave it empty. George Martin has this idea for this piano solo. He wants to play it really, really fast, but he's not sure he can get it quite the way he wants, so they record it at half speed and speed it up. So when you listen to it, not only sounds fast, it sounds like a harpsichord, but it's really a piano. Yeah, I love the image of John and George Martin sitting next to each other at the piano. John had already recorded that as a guitar solo, didn't get the sound he wanted, and George Martin says, well, I could do it on the piano, and because John can't write music, he's going, duh. George Martin plays it with one finger, writes it. And then John goes, duh. And then he plays it and writes it. And John's recording it note by note vocally yeah. while George Martin is writing it. I mean, <laughs> genius. How do you, how does something like that happen? Yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing. And the result is an album that's a real game changer. Yes. And it's the album that inspired Brian Wilson to do Pet Sounds. And bear in mind, Brian Wilson was not listening to the British version of Rubber Soul. He's listening to the American version. Now, and I get asked this all the time, what's the difference between the two? The American one is more of an acoustic folk song dominated album. The British one, there's more variety. You open up 
with Drive My Car, a really right. good rocker. You know, and you have If I Needed Someone, Nowhere Man, which could fit on either version, but it's only on the British. Um, and so people say, well, which one's better? And what I tell them is it's like comparing a great red wine and a great white wine. It's That's not right. fair to compare <laughs> which is better. They both have their own subtleties and they both will get you drunk. <laughs> I love that. I so love that. Well, it is, we could, we could talk about rubber soul forever. I mean. And how about that little throwaway single? We can work it out in day tripper. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you take nowhere man, which gets overlooked really, which inspires Brian Wilson to do. I just wasn't made for times like these mm-hmm. on pet sounds. And then pet sounds comes back and inspires the Beatles again it's just, it's amazing. But we've got to look at Revolver. So I'm going to turn things over to Lena and we'll All right. move ahead. All right. So we are moving into 1966. And in the early part of that year, John tells New Musical Express that the next LP is going to be very different. He yeah. says it's going to have electronic music, jokes, and literally anything. Of course, he's referring to what will become Revolver. Was John Wright? Was Revolver a markedly different LP? And if so, what made it so singular in the Beatles catalog? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's funny because George says it's Rubber Soul Part 2, but it's, I don't think so. It's totally different. It's, I agree. You know, it is, it's the same in the sense of once again, the Beatles have done 14 great songs. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the similarities. The thing that about the album is the Beatles, for the very first time, use the recording studio as an instrument of its own. They use the electronic, the tape loops, and all these other things on Tomorrow Never Knows, and all sorts of other things. They bring in you know, a string quartet for Eleanor Rigby. They bring in Alan Civil to play French horn on For No One. They do all these things to make the album really special, getting sounds they never had before. And they also used something that was invented for them by the engineer at Abbey Road, Ken Townsend, artificial double tracking. And the story of how that comes about is a wonderful story. I had the pleasure to interview Sir Ken Townsend at his home. What a humble man. He picks me up at the train station and we're gonna, he's going to drive me to his house for tea and an interview. And of course, we walk to his car and I go to get in, which I'm sure is a passenger side. And Ken jokingly says, oh, do you want the keys and drive the car too? And then I realize, of course, I'm on the wrong side because I'm in England. <laughs> but a wonderful man. And, and I said, you know, well, tell me some fun little stories. And he says, well, I was giving John a ride home one night and he was complaining about the fact that I'm just tired of coming in and, you know, overdubbing my vocals to get that wonderful sound. You know, what can you do about it? And Ken came up with artificial double tracking. And what they did was rather than John singing it twice, John would sing it one time, and then they would play it slightly out of sync. Ah. By playing it slightly out of sync, it sounds like two different voices, even though it's the exact same voice. So that's what artificial double tracking is. And... The Beatles did it on the vocals, but then they got the idea of, we could do that on the instruments too. And they got real excited about using it. And, you know, and John would get these crazy ideas, you know, like for Tomorrow Never Knows, the song that was going to 
you know, be like Ornette Coleman, what he did to jazz, the Beatles were going to do to rock and roll. And there were some reviewers that made that comparison, you know, and so that was fascinating. But what he, the idea was, you know, he tells George Martin, I want my voice to sound like it's, you know, the Dalai Lama up in the mountains. And so what do they do? They run his voice through a rotating Leslie speaker and it gets at that sound. One of the reviewers, when he reviewed it, said it sounded like John was singing from Abbey Road. Well, today we go, well, of course, he was in Abbey Road Studios. What a dumb thing to say. No, what the reviewer meant was, because at the time, it wasn't called Abbey Road Studios. It was right. called EMI Studios, which was on Abbey Road. And what he meant was, it sounds like John was outside the studio singing from Abbey Road, the street. And that's what yeah. he meant. So you get those little fascinating little things in these contemporaneous reviews. What's fascinating about Revolver is when the Beatles went to Germany, they brought a recordings of it. And, you know, it wasn't the greatest quality, but the reviewers and reporters from England who had came to see the Beatles perform in Germany to write about it, they're like sitting in the Beatles hotel room and it's like, hey, do you want to hear our new album, essentially? And they're hearing these songs. Um, and, you know, and then they're writing about it. So what happens is a couple of months before the album hits the stores, if you lived in the UK and were buying these music magazines, you knew about four, 11 of those 14 songs, which is wow. fascinating. And not only that, but you'd already heard the single paperback writer Rain in both the US and the UK. Boy, did that sound different. You know, oh. imagine, oh, yeah. you know, for somebody, you know, and look, a lot of people argue, what was the first heavy metal song? John says, Ticket to Ride. I don't know if I agree with that, but I got to tell you, Rain, that checks all the boxes. The drumming by Ringo, that heavy sound, you know, boom, boom, the whole bit. And then, of course, Paperback Writer, you know, just the wonderful bass sound on that. You know, Paul used the Rickenbacker on Rubber Soul, but the Rickenbacker sounds a lot different on Revolver. What happened was the Beatles basically said, look, we want to get the sound that, you know, the American records have, the Motown records, the Stax records in particular. And to get that sound, if you guys can't do it, we're going to go to Memphis and record there. <laughs> yep. Well, of course, the British engineers at Abbey Road were very offended by the idea that the Beatles had to go elsewhere to get a good sound. So they worked to get that sound at Abbey Road for the Beatles, and they did. Fascinating. So speaking of rain, I was intrigued at your collection of reviews in the book from the fans <laughs> and the critiques for the single that most fans did not care for was rain. Yep. But Penny Valentine, a professional singles reviewer, begged to differ. Tell us a little bit about the differences between fan opinions and critical opinions of Rain and uh, backed with Paperback Writer. Yeah, one of the publications invited about a half a dozen fans to come hear the new Beatles single and give their reactions. Mm -hmm. And most were not impressed, not even with Paperback Writer. You know, wow. it was so different. And I think that's what threw them. And a couple of different people had made this point when they were reviewing Beatles singles. They'd say, you know, it has to grow on you because the first couple of times it's so different than the one before that you have to get used to it. And that was really the case with this new single. There was nothing like it that the Beatles had ever done before. I mean, you know, you hear this wonderful 
Beach Boys type harmony, open up paperback writer, and then Ringo hits that drum and bam. And all of a sudden you've got this great guitar riff, which of course I at the time thought was George, but later learned it was Paul. And then Paul has this great bass part. He's all over the place with that bass guitar and the, you know, immaculate vocals and everything about the song. And then there were things about the song that I didn't notice until I heard it on CD where you could really hear it carefully. And it's like, oh yeah, in the background, they're doing Frere Jaca. How cool is that? <laughs> and But there were people in the UK and one of the fan recollections, this guy, Gary Marsh, you know, his French teacher knew right away that they were singing Frere Jaca in the background. So that's how he knew, you know, and, and you get these wonderful little things. But for many people, this was the single where I think one reviewer said, you know, it, it wasn't a music magazine. I think it was a newspaper. said, if this had been by anybody else, no one would give it any attention. It's terrible. Wow. What? Yeah, yeah I know. What? How could they? I have to tell you a funny story. And I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, my son, we're going through Sonic. He's in high school and I'm driving him through Sonic to get one of those big gulps. And paperback writer is on the radio, car radio. And he says to me, hey, mom. I finally figured out what made the Beatles so great. And I said, okay, what is it? And he goes, Paul McCartney's bass playing. I said, get out of the car. Just open the door and get out of the car. He says, you can't make me walk home over there. Get out of the car. And of course, Jude, before you hit the kill button, he's right. It wasn't just Paul's bass playing. But what was happening was that they began recording differently particularly when you get to Sgt. Pepper. But what they were doing is they would lay down a basic track sometimes without Paul's bass part. And then Paul in his head would hear this great bass part and he would overdub his bass. And that's why you get some of these fascinating bass parts. Paperback writer, prime example. Paul cannot be playing bass live because he's playing that lead guitar part. So now Paul is, you know, he's got the headphones on and he's sitting there and he's laying down this incredible bass part, you know, room, 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 the whole bit. And so when they changed the way they recorded, it also changed the way the records turned out, and it gave Paul the freedom. Now, there are other songs where Paul and Ringo are playing that bass in drums in tandem, like Tomorrow Never Knows. So you get different things. Sometimes Paul is playing the bass live. Sometimes he's overdubbing it. And it really makes a difference as to how the song sounds at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. It, it, well, uh, he was definitely impressed. I was not impressed with the assessment, but anyway, I did not make him walk home. Okay, so the <laughs> times they were changing, and um, Bill Miller is now replacing Dave Dexter at Capitol Records. And yeah. so we get yesterday and today an unusual collection that of course is not seen on the other side of the atlantic ocean and yesterday and today has what four of the songs that were supposed to have been on rubber soul or were on the emi version of mm -hmm. rubber soul and we weren't allowed to hear those songs from you know december i guess rubber soul came out december 3rd and december 6th and we don't hear them until june of the next year in 1966 well. so not entirely, because two of them come out it? on an American single. We have oh, that's true. That's uh, No True Man yes. and What Goes On. That's true. And the other thing is there are radio stations that sometimes get the British albums and they play the songs. How do I know that? Because I'll look at a chart from a radio station and, you know, at number 20, 
is Nowhere Man before wow. the Nowhere Man single comes out. Wow. And even in fan recollections, I had someone, she was, I think, from the Chicago area, and she wrote to the radio station, you know, how do you get these songs? And they gave her the name of a shop in the UK. So she has not only Beatles 65, but she has Beatles for sale. I mean, yeah. how cool is that? And yeah. so some people were getting it. But what makes it so different is that for most Americans, we get these songs later. We get the great singles because we've got Day Tripper, we can work it out. We've got Yesterday, Act Naturally. And the other fun thing is, you know, when Bill Miller is programming this album, he wants 11 songs. And he just says, look, I've got eight songs right now. I'm three short. I could do Paperback Writer in Rain, but that single's brand new. Why do I want to hurt the sales of that single by putting them on the album? Hey, guys, what you got? Oh, we're doing this great new album. Yeah, but your new album is going to have 14 songs, and we're only going to use 11 of them on our album because we don't want to pay that extra royalties bit. You know? And so you know, in the U.S., royalties were two cents per song. In the U.K., it was the entire album divided by the number of songs. Different way of doing it. So the idea is, look, we're only going to use 11 of them on the next album. Why don't you give us three of them now? So George Martin looks at the songs they have. Can't give them Tomorrow Never Knows. That's just so different. Can't give them Taxman because that might open the album. We'll give them these three songs, you know, And Your Bird Can Sing. We'll give them that one. We'll give them I'm Only Sleeping. But the problem that George Martin doesn't realize, he gives them three John Lennon songs, which makes Yesterday and Today probably one of Jude's favorite albums because it has these wonderful John Lennon songs on it. But what happens by doing that? When Revolver comes out in the U.S., John must have taken the day off because Paul has five songs. George has three. Ringo has one. John only has two songs on the album. I told you. I am. I think I wrote it in my fan recollection. You did. I'm playing it over and over going, what can I like on this record? What can I like on this record? I don't want to not like a Beatles record, but I don't like this record because if you don't, you know, I mean, it, it was very John. There was a dearth of John. Bacon. <laughs> Bacon. Yeah. It, John Bacon. It was. It really was. Well, And, and did, look at what John's two songs are. Tomorrow well, Never Knows and She Said, She Said. Yeah. And if you're not really into the heavy metal sound, which I wasn't. Yeah. They're very, like, very edgy. Yeah. 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 I was about as edgy as an eraser. Yeah. So. <laughs> now, 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 can we talk about can we talk about the covers a little bit? And that's, by what covers, to, that's what I want to talk about. Go, and by go. covers, I don't mean that Act Naturally is a cover version of a Buck Owens song. <laughs> I know. If that. you look at the Rubber Soul album cover, Robert Freeman by this time wants to do something different. Like he's he's always done something different, but this one he wants to use different tones and all, and he's going to use these darker tones. And the Beatles are wearing these you know, suede leather jackets and the turtlenecks. And they're taken against a background shrub at John's house. And he's showing them the different pictures. And while he's doing so, one of them gets distorted and kind of falls. It gets bent. And, and the group sees it bent like that and say, hey, can you do that? He says, of course I can. And I can do that in the darkroom on the enlarger. 
and they get that done. And rather than just having your normal typeface setting, the idea is let's have a rubber sole logo, have rubber sole written some way. And the artist's conception when he thinks of it is, well, you know, rubber sole, what of a rubber tree? If you tap a rubber tree, it begins to flow out of the tree. And so the idea is to get the letters to kind of flow out and comes up with this incredible logo. Capital, for the first time, says, yeah, we're going to use the same cover and the same album title. They hadn't done that since With the Beatles became Meet the Beatles with the same basic cover. Capital covers had always been different. But for Rubber Soul, they see something so wonderful you and unique that they use it. And they even, as much as it killed Dave Dexter, the name The Beatles doesn't appear on that cover. One of the things Dexter said, our covers are better than the Beatles covers because we market them by putting the Beatles name on it. You know, well, this time he can't do that. And it's a remarkable cover, you know, a maturing Beatles, as it were, uh, to go along with the songs. So we're going to move forward to Rubber Soul and we'll go backwards to yesterday and today. Revolver. Robert Freeman, because the album's called Revolver, gets this idea of a photo collage with sort of like a record with different layers going out. And it just doesn't do it for the Beatles for whatever reason. They don't particularly like it. And they talk to Klaus Vorman, do you have some ideas? And he gets the idea about doing a pen and ink. But there's something missing with the pen and ink. And he gets the idea, what if I make it a collage and I put all these different little pictures in it? And he does it. And the Beatles really like it. And it's a stark difference from anything they've done before. It's, it's a black and white album cover. Yeah. Yet it's remarkable cover. And it gets nominated for a Grammy Award because it's such a remarkable cover and wins. Yeah. So now we've got, we've talked about those two remarkable covers. But wait, there's more. And <laughs> the most of it, the biggie. And it's written yeah. about incorrectly so many times. And the butcher cover chapter in this book, which for me, I'm going to tell you, that alone would be worth buying the book just for that chapter, even if we didn't talk about Rubber Soul and Revolver. The butcher cover chapter, I think, is like 48 pages long. It has all the essential Bob Whitaker photos and other things, you know, that were telling that story. And what's great about it is that, you know, you look at the cover and, you know, and everyone says, and what I titled that chapter was, you know, Mommy, did Capital really butcher the Beatles? <laughs> the answer is no. Capital and that is a long-standing thing. I mean, absolutely. You're, you're in groundbreaking territory here. Yeah. And what people said was the idea was part of the point of the butcher cover was Capital butchers the Beatles. The Beatles say, look, photograph us in butcher smocks and raw meat and decapitated baby dolls. And we're going to stick it to Capitol with this brutal visual pun. Not true at all. What happens is that Robert Whitaker had done some Beatle photo sessions. Take a look at the album Beatles 65. Not a British album. What's the cover mean? They have four different pictures of the Beatles. It's the four seasons. Whitaker was into themes. You look at them. One, they're wearing coats. One, they're umbrellas. You know, and one, they're holding springs. It's a spring photo. When they're raking le- you know, leaves, you get the idea. It's the four seasons. So he gets the Beatles back together again. And for the next session, 
he does a few weird things. We're going to have the Beatles with polythene. And this picture's not really used anywhere, but I have it in the book. And it's a fun picture because it's uncropped. And you see this girl off to the side holding these giant polythene sheets. I don't think her name was Pam, but, <laughs> but who knows? Possible. It's possible. possible. They also, one of them is, well, you know, behind this giant Salvador Dali looking type eye. So these are the things Whitaker's done. So now Whitaker's going to do another Beatles session. And Brian tells him, we need a publicity shot for the upcoming tour. So at the beginning of the session, Whitaker does that. He takes a standard picture of the four Beatles. And in the book, we have a picture of the Beatles, of a photographer from the Beatles book who's there. And he takes a picture of Whitaker taking the picture of the Beatles. And we see that Whitaker has an assistant there taking pictures at the same time. Why is that important? Because for the so-called butcher session, when we get to that, they're both color and black and white pictures. Now we know there were two photographers. So it's a very important thing. So anyway, the portrait's done. And now he's going to take some other things. And he has Paul hold up a question mark. That's kind of cool because they don't know where they're going. And he has the idea of, I want to do something with the theme of, and you can't make this stuff up, well in advance of knowing about this Yesterday and Today album, the theme of Yesterday and Today. Wow. So what are we going to do? He wants to show the birth of the Beatles. How do we do that? Well, how about showing an umbilical cord coming out of a woman? So he has the Beatles hold a string of sausages up to a woman's belly. And that's birth of the Beatles. Then he has other ideas. Well, you know, mortality and death. Oh, I'm going to have George hammer nails into John's head. I remember that one. Yeah. To show the Beatles are like anybody else. They're flesh and blood. If you hammer a nail in their head, they'll bleed. Okay. Then he's got one of Paul holding up a birdcage with George's head in it. Why? Because the Beatles sing like canaries. And also, although he doesn't say it, I think he's thinking the Beatles are a prisoner of their own success. Right. And then to break the image, we're going to do these things with the butcher smocks and the, you know, the death and the whole thing. And the idea is a bunch of these different pictures are going to be put on one album cover that'll have a gatefold inside. And it's going to put halos above the butch Beatles. And it's not going to be by itself very crazy concept idea but it never went anywhere well tony barrow comes to the end of the photo session tony was a beatles publicist right and he goes back and he says brian you know i've been told they got the publicity photos we needed some really weird stuff happened at the end of the session don't worry these will never see the light of day and that's basically what they think and so in the meantime, Capital lets Brian know we're coming out with a new album and we need something for the cover. And as fate would have it, Whitaker's going to be at Brian's office uh, about some other things. For one thing, he wants to show the boys the photos from the what we call now the butcher session. And Brian says, well, as long as you're there, grab your camera and your equipment. Let's get some pictures of the Beatles. So what's around Brian's office? A steamer trunk. So they take a picture of the Beatles around the steamer trunk, and that is done. Brian sends a copy of that to Capitol in the U.S., a colored picture of the Beatles around a steamer trunk. And 
Yes, you read things differently, but that is the first cover for yesterday and today. What we now call the blue trunk or the purple trunk, if you want to give it a wrong title, because it's really a blue background. Now, why did Capital come up with a blue background on the side with yellow, you know, yesterday and day, the Beatles in yellow and the song titles in white? The album was called Yesterday and Today. Why? Because it had yesterday on it. And so they took the color scheme from the yesterday picture sleeve, blue, yellow, white. And so that's why they use those colors. And off to the other side, for two-thirds of it, the picture of the Beatles in Brian's office with garish-looking curtains in the steamer trunk. That's going to be the cover of the album. And, but for Brian's intervention, it would have been. Brian, for whatever reason, tells Capital, even though Brian sent him the picture, I want to see the cover. So Capital sends him an image of the cover. And Capital wants to get the presses rolling for the album cover. And Brian looks at it, and he doesn't like it. Well, it's a horrible photo of the Beatles. They look furious. But Brian sent it to him. I know. It's Brian's photo. I know, but they do look really mad in that photo. Well, that's, <laughs> yeah, we got to get a picture taken again. Yeah. Okay. So, but he takes the picture and, you know, and sends it to Capitol. Capitol sends it. So he says, come up with something else using that picture. So Capitol says, look, we can get rid of the background. So they send Brian a white, you know, picture, you know, white background with the butcher, not the butcher, the trunk cover cut out. Brian looks at it and there's a picture of Brian looking at it. It's just a mock-up. And where is he doing it? He's doing it the same day that the video for Paperback Writer is shot. How do we know that? Because of the background. Now, what happened the day before that? they shot the video for Rain and Paperback Writer at Abbey Road Studios. What do we see at the beginning of the Paperback Writer? Paul is holding up a transparency of what? A butcher photo transparency. So keep this in mind. The Beatles have already seen black and white pictures from the butcher session. The day before, they have seen color transparencies of the butcher session. And now... They're doing these outdoor videos. And Brian says, hey, here's the mock-up for the new album cover. And John looks at this boring white background trunk picture and says, no, I want to use one of the butcher transparencies I saw at Abbey Road yesterday. I can and see Brian, that. Yeah. And we, know, we, don't have, we don't have a tape recording of what happened. I can but see can it. But you can imagine uh -huh. Brian saying, no, John, you I can't am. do that. And John saying, absolutely. And Paul's saying, yeah, that'd be really hip. And Ringo and George saying, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and so Capitol gets this picture, butcher thing, sent to them. It gets to the Capitol Tower. George Osaki, the art director, is the only one who gets it. And he looks at it and goes, hey, this is great. He's an art director. Of course yeah. he likes it. And he says, I know what I'm going to do with this. I'm going to crop it so that there'll be an empty upper corner where we'll list the song titles and we'll put the title yesterday and today, but I'm not going to do it in some dull block letters. I'm going to get this psychedelic looking thought and I'm going to do that. And then 
I'm going to have it textured when they print it so it looks like it's canvas. And we're going to make it a, like, a, like a piece of art. And he's all excited with it. And the sales force looks and they're like, oh, my God, there is no way that we can put this in stores. Parents will scream bloody murder. And so what happens is they take it to Alan Livingston, the president of Capital, and Alan says, we can't put this out. And he calls up Brian. He says, Brian, there's no way we can put this out. And Brian, who hates the cover, in his word, it will ruin the Beatles' image. His marching orders from John are, that's the cover. And so he has to fight for the cover. And so Alan Livingston meets with the sales force and the production team, and he says, look, just run a small number, and we'll see what kind of reaction we get. Well, the sales force and the production people go behind Livingston's back and say, we want the album in the stores. Damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. So they do, you know, about 750,000 butcher cover albums are manufactured. And, of course, the review copies go out, and everybody screams bloody murder. Bear in <laughs> mind. So to speak. You know, as yeah, literally. Literally. <laughs> literally. This is, this is pre-Alice Cooper dead babies and all that other stuff. It was five and years ahead of its time, at least. Very much so. Yeah. And so what happens is Capital has to recall the cover. Alan calls up Brian. He says, they won't put it in the stores. Um, and Brian is worried because he thinks, oh, my God, John is going to be so mad at me because I couldn't get this cover out. You know, maybe they'll fire me. He's all worried. And basically, he and Tony Barrow talk, and you know, I realized you just tell John, we tried, it got recalled. It's all we could do. But Alan Livingston asked him a question. He says, What is this cover about? And he's told, John thinks it's their statement on war. And John of the 66 tour says, If Americans can accept something as cruel as the war in Vietnam, they can accept this cover. A political statement yeah. from a musician, extremely rare back then, an anti-war statement. And also, the ironic thing is, the American public at that time could accept the war in Vietnam, but not that album cover. Yeah. Anyway, John, you know, basically, we get it. Brian takes the transparency in his office, according to Tony Barrow, takes out his cigarette lighter and lights it and burns it in his ashtray and wonders if he's seeing the Beatles' career go up in smoke because of this incident. So the cover gets recalled, but some of the damage has already been done. And people, and, and so what does Capital do? Well, initially, they're going to recall the album and destroy all the covers. It's called Operation Recall. And they have employees come in during the weekend and take the albums out in their inner sleeves and stack them in a corner and all the jackets go, you know, to be destroyed. Some of them, they're buried in a landfill somewhere outside of Boston, you know, some in Illinois, you know, they're destroyed. But before all of them, they're destroyed. Somebody at Capitol gets an idea, you know, cardboard costs money. Cardboard by itself is not offensive. The back cover is not offensive. It just lists the song titles. What if we pasted over a new design? Think of the money we could save. 
Well, while that's going on, George Osaki has to come up with a new design. What he does is he takes the outlay for the yesterday and today butcher cover, that black sheet with the black text, and he takes a trunk design he had, and he moves the trunk a little bit to the side. Boom, I'm done. And so the order is trunk, butcher, trunk. So now we're back to a trunk cover. And so that's ready to go. Well, the capital production team, they contact the two main companies they use to manufacture their album covers, Imperial and Modern Album. And I think it, I might be getting this wrong, but I think it's Imperial says, no way. Because there's a problem if we do this. If we use glue that's too strong to hold on that new cover we're pasting over, it'll bleed through the cardboard. It could damage the vinyl. If we use glue that's not strong enough, it could peel off. The other album fabricator company says, of course we can do it. And so they do it. And so when you went to the store, first of all, the butcher cover actually, before it was recalled, was on sale in very limited number of stores. You might find it at a Sears Roebuck in what we called something that was serviced by what we call rack jobbers. These are people that fill the racks with the records. And so Capitals distributors never send it out. You know, they got them in time. And also, Wallace's Music City in L.A., in Hollywood, because its founder was the original founder of Capital, they have it initially. But what happens is when the recall hits, they pull them all off the racks. And then a week or so later, the album comes out again. Well, some people notice something's not quite right about the way this is. You know, if I look closely behind that white background, I can see what looks like in a black triangle. What's the black triangle? It's Ringo's black turtleneck from the butcher cover picture that had been pasted over. And they learn that you can steam it off and they begin doing it. And so now people, you know, many people have the butcher cover. So that's, you know, the fascinating story behind it. And I'm leaving out a lot of the details that, of course, you can get in the book. Now, what are these butcher covers worth? Well, if you were to have a sealed stereo butcher cover, one recently went in an auction for $112,500. Oh, wow. There are not a lot of those out there. If you have a what we call a Livingston butcher, which means it was from Alan Livingston's collection and comes with a letter saying so. Stereo one like that, I would say would go for 150000 or more and could go for a quarter of a million or more. There are only four of them. And it could go for that much. It do really you could. have one? Do you have No, one I do not. I have butcher covers, but I do not have a Livingston butcher. Now, when I interviewed Alan Livingston, he had one left, and it was a mono one. And he said, yeah, I've got one. Would you like to see it? I said, yeah. And he hands it to me, and he says, yeah, that must be worth $1,000 or so, huh? <laughs> I said, Alan, at the time it was worth maybe ten. I said, Alan, I would love to take it off your hands for $1,000, but I would feel guilty for the rest of my life. I said, that's got a lot of value, Alan. And when I told him how much, he was, that much? I said, yeah. 
if I have been dishonest, I'd have something really valuable. Yeah, no, probably too. worth sixty, seventy, eighty thousand. Especially if you'd gotten a note from him to go along with it. You know, oh, yeah. that's amazing. That's a, yeah. That story alone, Bruce. If you did nothing else in this book, and that was the only thing in this book, <laughs> that scholarship and that research alone should sell the book out totally and completely because no, nobody else I mean, has done, nobody else has done that. What you've got is you've got two of the Beatles' best albums, yeah. Rubber Soul and Revolver, yeah. written yeah. about. Yeah. And then, oh, yeah, you know, a 46, 48-page chapter on the Butcher cover it's that amazing. shows all of the essential wow. items. Now, there is a bit of irony in the Butcher cover, and that is the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, took the heat in the press that this was Brian's idea. Brian was into sick humor and pop art. And Brian wanted the butcher cover. Why would he do that? John would have been more than happy to take responsibility for it. Because Brian was the manager of the group. Uh -huh. And when you're the manager, your boys can't take that hit. Wow. So Brian took the hit, even though he hated the cover. In the press, Brian was blamed for the butcher cover. Wow. Now, what's the ultimate irony? The butcher cover is Brian's fault. Why? Because... If Brian had allowed Capital to put out Yesterday and Today in the blue trunk cover as planned, there never would have been a butcher cover. So not the way you think of it, but it is Brian's fault. That's amazing. All right. Well, because people are going to be going out in swarms to get this book, where can they get it? Where can they follow you on social media and tell us a little bit about what you'll be doing, if you know, at the <laughs> Fest for Beatles fans? Well, at the Fest for Beatle fans, I'm hoping to have copies of the book. Right now, as we're taping this, I physically don't have the book. I may or may not. The street date for the book is October 10th. But what I want you to know is if you order from my website, you will get it as soon as we get it and can pack it and send it out. And the printer is telling me that they hope to have the book for us anywhere from four to seven weeks early. So Ooh. as you're watching this show, Hopefully, we'll, we'll have the book. And yes, you can get it cheaper on Amazon. However, you can't get it this quick. And you also can't get it signed. And you can't get it personalized there. And the other thing to buy in mind, if you get it from Beetle.net, that's the website. How easy is that? Beetle.net. <laughs> no S in Beetles. If you get it from us, we also pack it in bubble wrap. And in a sturdy box, we call pizza boxes because the book's a square, and it looks like a pizza box, and you get it packed really well. And the other thing is we have a limited collector's edition, which we do only 500 of, signed and numbered, and it comes with extra goodies. It comes in a case. It also comes with some posters and a bookmark and other fun things, and you can only get that through Beetle.net. And we don't like overcharging people. Collector edition books normally are $150 to $250 or more. We sell that for just $100 for a collector's item, instant collector's item. And the regular copy on this book, we have to raise our price from $30 to $40. Not only is everything going up, my printing costs went up 50%, but not only that, but the book's the biggest book we've ever done in the album series and the licensing costs. Imagine what it costs to license all those wonderful Bob Whitaker pictures, but how can you do a book on the butcher yeah. cover 
without those pictures. You can't. Right. That is absolutely splendid, Bruce. That is um, going to be such a fantastic book. And you're the only person on the planet that I know that can get something shipped early. <laughs> so well, um, kudos to you. Well, well thank you. We, we do these self-imposed deadlines. And so far, I've made all my self-imposed deadlines. And Fantastic. look, and I, and I couldn't do it without the crew that I have. You know, I've got people contributing articles. You know, Al Sussman, Frank Daniels, Pierce Hemmingston, Bill King. I also had, uh, you know, Jude contributing some stuff. All the other fan recollections. And this book, very proud to say that David Leaf, uh, an expert on the Beach Boys, wrote a wonderful piece on Rubber Soul and Revolver and how Brian Wilson was influenced by it. So, you know, some wonderful things, not just my writing, but other people have written great stuff for me, and great fan recollections, as always. And my graphic designer, Diana Thornton, has been with me from day one. We've done every book together. And, you know, and she is just phenomenal. She's taught me a lot of the tricks. We're at the point now where I do a lot of the basic layouts on my own and then wow. say, Diana, make it look incredible. And she always <laughs> does. So it's, you know, these books right now are truly a team effort. I couldn't do the Beatles album series without the team I've assembled and without the fans who send in the fan recollections. The book would not be the same. Our buddy Tom Frangione tells me when he gets the book, the first thing he does is he flips to the fan recollections because, you know, Tom, he knows all this. He knows all that other stuff for most of it. But it's the fan recollections he enjoys because it's a fresh perspective on this that he hasn't read yet. Absolutely. Well, it's a very impressive feat. So everyone go to beetle.net to get your copy reserved and um, everyone will be in for quite a treat. We cannot wait to see you at the Fest for Beatles fans. You will be and in person. Yes. And I'll, I'll know a little bit of what I'm doing. Okay. I will be doing a presentation on Magical Mystery Tour Yellow Submarine, which is a really fun presentation. And if you lived in the U.S., you didn't realize how these projects were joined together. If you were in the U.K., you got that impression. And the songs recorded during what I call the productive post-pepper period. Uh, that those, <laughs> beep, beep, beep. Yeah, Peter Pedersen's Pet Pig Porky, whoops, wrong group. Anyway, <laughs> what, what they do is you see the Beatles, the first song released from that is All You Need Is Love. And that song is broadcast throughout the world via satellite, which was something brand new in those days, recorded live in Abbey Road Studios. The last song they released from the album, uh, not the album, I mean these sessions, which is right before they went to India, was Across the Universe. And 40 years after that song was recorded, that song is literally beamed by NASA across the universe. Oh, so wow. that post you know, that really is that post-pepper period is very productive. I'll also be on a panel with Mark Lewis and assuming he's able to get to the fest, which we believe he is, and what we'll do on Growing Up with the Beatles, where we talk about what it was like, because it was so different in the U.S. His experience and my experience were so different. We talk about that. I'll be on panels with, I'm sure, with Al Sussman and others. And I'm really looking forward to being on the different panels with all of my friends. And, uh, of course, seeing people who I haven't seen since COVID. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, we can't wait to see you too. We're counting the days. So August 12th Absolutely. through the 14th, guys, you got to be there. 
the Fest for Beatles fans. So we're going to go ahead and sign off, Bruce. Thank you so much for your time today. It was fantastic to see you and speak with you. We can't wait for the new book. Thanks so much. Enjoy it as always. Thank you. Right. Thank you. It was a treat. It was absolutely a treat. So if you're getting ready for the Fest for Beatles fans, you are going to be in for a treat. You're going to see Bruce and the likes of many other great, great Beatles people. So Mark and Carol Lapidos promise that at the Chicago Fest for Beatles fans that a splendid time is guaranteed for all, and they always deliver, just like Amazon. So if you haven't made reservations, do so, pack your bags, and we will see you there. So until then, thank you so much for tuning in to She Said, She Said. We treasure you so much for being a part of our show. Please like and follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and we will stay in touch. And until we meet again, here's to food for thought, food for the soul, food for the love of rock and roll. ta -ra. And shine on.